My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and the host of the Coffin Fellows podcast. This season, our podcast is produced in partnership with Mighty Capital and features different Coffin Fellows as co-hosts. In this podcast, we dive deep into the personal narratives of some of the most successful names in the venture capital industry, but we're not here just to explore their highlight reels, however impressive they are. From failures and formative learning experiences to inflection points and aha moments, we discuss the real, authentic journeys that each individual goes through to become the best version of themselves in order to best serve the entrepreneurs they invest in. Covering various themes in venture capital investing, we speak with the world's top leaders in capital formation, all from a place of authenticity and vulnerability. Together, we'll unravel what truly makes a great venture capital investor. Now let's meet today's host and their guest. Hi, and good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are in the world. I'm Renan Ashkenazi from Grow Ventures, and I'm excited to host this series on winning the deal, the before and the after. Let's hear from my guest today. Hi, everyone. For this uh, episode, I'm both excited and honored to have with me Anne Mirako, who, as she defines herself on our Medium page, is an investing ninja, data geek, and mom, and mom to three rascals. I'm, we're going to talk about the rascals part in a little bit. Uh, she's also, if you've been living under a rock, a co-founding partner at Floodgate, a repeat member of the Forbes Meetup list and the New York Times Top 20 Venture Capitalists Worldwide. If that's not enough, Anne was also named the most powerful woman in startups by Forbes. And suffice to say that the least imp- impressive part of a resume is a PhD in math modeling of InfoSec at Stanford. So there you go. And it's so great to have you with me today. Thanks for having me. We are here to talk about conviction. And we always say that venture is both a, a head and a heart or gut kind of investment. And some say that due diligence is a process where you kind of try to convince your head with what your gut said in the very first meeting. And mm-hmm. all the data in the world isn't enough, right? What you really want is to feel that conviction. And I was wondering, where do you stand in that gut mind debate? Do you have a, a process or a framework when it comes to, to conviction? Yeah. Um... I think when it comes to conviction, it's really tied to a few things. So one is a prepared mind, right? So knowing what you're looking for, knowing what you care about, and knowing how you think about things, uh, and, and actually also even what your mood is and being really attuned to that. For me, there are moments when I'm hugely optimistic. I'm not just always blindly optimistic. And so I need to know where on the spectrum am I at this moment and how do I feel about, you know, am I being more logical? Am I just hungry and mad? Um, (laughs) And, and so I, I am, I would say for the most part, the early stage investing is so much gut uh, and so much intuition because there's really nothing to analyze. And so that, that's a tough, tough piece of coming in so early, but it's also what I really love about it because you can make very unconventional investments and justify it with, it's your gut. Yeah. And you have, by the way, made some unconventional yeah. investments. Yes, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But, but that's, a, I just heard a podcast with uh, Owen Zevi and he was talking about, um, he was talking about uh, how, he doesn't work in, a, he doesn't like a partnership because he doesn't want to have to convince anyone else. But when you invest based on your gut and you do have partners, what happens when you fall in love with a deal, but then your partner 
absolutely, totally hates it. So I think this is just sort of driven by personality type too, right? So within our, within at least the way I like to operate, I actually explore ideas through debate. And, and so I actually don't mind when people disagree with me and I love having someone try to talk me out of something because that's how I explore ideas. Now that what I've come to realize is that isn't the way everyone explores ideas. And so when we, when we hire someone new, one of the things that they have to get used to is just the the vociferous nature of our disagreements and how do you become comfortable with that? You know? And so I, I remember telling one of our partners, Arjun, when he was first looking at this deal and he was really excited by it. And I remember in the first session, like I gave him all the reasons why I felt like it wasn't, it wasn't the right idea. And I think in the first iteration, he was like, he thought that I was telling him to pass. And I had to email him and say, you know, what I said doesn't mean I hate the idea. It is just sort of the way I explore ideas. And so just, just you know, reflect on those points and then figure it out for yourself. Yeah. And so I think what I love about our organization is we really are truth seekers. And we, we believe that truth can come from anywhere. Like anyone can tell us. It could be you know, any, literally anyone on our team, it doesn't, it's not based on status or title uh, or age and any of the customers or any of the calls that we're making can tell us truth or give us indicators of truth. And so for me, being by myself doesn't get me closer to that. I get closer to truth by having people disagree with me. Yeah. You want them to be able to defend their thought rather than just give it up. I, I totally get that. We can talk about non-consensus deals, right? On one hand, when successful, those tend to be the highest returning ones, but but on the other, probably the most difficult ones to make. So like what do you think about that is I mean, how do you how do you guys deal with with non-consensus? Well, we we strongly believe that the the critical part of early stage investing is making bets on non-consensus beliefs. And we're pretty, we think about this a lot. So in my mind, venture capital really is only used in a narrow set of instances when it comes to startup companies. Venture capital is best used when there is a massive inflection point that's about to happen. And most people throw around inflection points pretty casually. Yeah. For us, there are components to an inflection point. The first part is that there is a real cause to an inflection point. That cause is uh, tied to something technical. So a new technology emerges that is going through an inflection point. Natural language processing is a good example of that today. Or that, that enables you to do something new that you never could do before, right? And that's, that could be an inflection point. Regulatory changes can be an inflection point. So in the United States over COVID, telemedicine became possible across state lines. And that was a big 
point in time that enabled new companies to be created. And then the third is really society. So societal beliefs or societal adoption of things can actually create new possibilities. And so if you have density of adoption of smartphones, as an example, you now have the possibility of something new. Um, if people believe that nuclear power is safe, that suddenly creates new possibilities, right? And so the, the ways in which society operates and what they believe and what they will adopt actually really creates huge changes in what is possible. So that's the cause of an inflection point. That cause then impacts an entire startup's ecosystem. It could change what is possible with building a product. So it might become better, cheaper, faster, um, things that weren't possible before suddenly become possible. A new business model might become a possibility because the margin structure is suddenly different. You can create it more cheaply. So therefore you can price it more cheaply. Or a power dynamic within an ecosystem can suddenly change. Suddenly you don't need the middleman in a supply chain, right? And so because of all the cause of an inflection point, you have something that fundamentally changes the way a, a startup can operate within that ecosystem. The most important piece is that that change suddenly creates a new adoption path. And your, you know, steady as it goes, linear growth curve suddenly becomes an exponential growth curve. And then the last ingredient is you as a startup have to have a secret about it. <laughs> because if everyone knows that this inflection is coming and how it's going to happen, and there's no disagreement about that, and you agree with everyone, then there's no path for a startup, right? A startup is such a nascent thing with so few resources that the single advantage that you have usually is that you know something that a lot of people don't know. I love that analysis. And so those stars need to align in order for a massive, you know, we call them thunder lizards to emerge. <laughs> I absolutely love that analysis. And it reminds me of, I heard someone talk about, um, how do you call it? You call it mental plasticity because yeah. that inflection point that you're talking about makes something that wasn't true before or that wasn't, or that didn't have the potential before to have potential now. And yeah. it's tricky because you've seen everything, right? And you've also seen everything fail. And so yeah. how do you not attribute past failures to, to current opportunities? How do you, how do you feel about mental plasticity, plasticity when you've, you've seen so much, both work and not work? I think like, and this goes back to optimism. <laughs> uh, some of it is actually, you just have to structure it into your organization and know how actually you return to optimism. For me, I, I sometimes just need to study something yeah. and then I can see, oh, this is what's changed. And so therefore everything is different now. But sometimes... You just need people to say, you should look at this again. Mm -hmm. And the people who are most likely to say that, those are the young people. Hmm. Right? And so 
within our organization, we're very passionate about always having young people around, whether they're interns, whether they're associates, whether they're part, we have like this loose network of former students who help me look at deals. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason is, I don't know if something's changed. And if someone is looking at an idea for the first time, they're much more likely to fall in love with it than for me to look at something where I've seen that same business or same type of business fail over and over and over again for a decade. And I'm blind to the fact that things are different now. Yeah. And so that, that's how I protect myself. And even then I still fall victim to this, this, this idea that, oh, it's not going to work. And I've seen <laughs> thousand times, you know, you're investing, like you said, in, 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 at the inception phase of startups and you've seen startups go wildly. Right. And I mean, I'm sorry to bring lift up, but lift and refining refinery 29 and Twitch and, and, and you've seen them go wildly wrong and reflecting back, if we're going back to, to the conviction discussion, do you feel like there's, there's a common thread for the, the winners or the ones that didn't succeed, notice that I didn't say losers, the winners and the ones that didn't succeed, that you could have, in hindsight, realized in the beginning something that you felt you could could point a finger at? I think if I were to boil it down to one thing, it's that we didn't have the right talent. And that doesn't mean that the founder wasn't talented, but in any organization, as the company also, and I'm thinking more, more of the companies that had huge potential, potentially even raised a lot of money along the way, and then fell flat. Why did that happen? Those are the ones that we really struggle over. Most of the time, we should have hired bigger, better people faster. And the reason why the founder doesn't is sort of multi-layered. One is sometimes they can't find the right talent. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they can't convince the right talent to come on board. Um, But more often than not, they're blind to the need to have that talent. More and more, I spend a lot of time, even at the very early pre-seed and seed stage, trying to convince our founders to take on great talent. And the ones that really embrace that really reduce so much of their risk along the way. And I don't think they even recognize that. Like you actually reduce your financing risk because people see what an incredible team you've built. You reduce actually your operational risk because with the right people, they will help you scale yourself as a founder. And so when my when my founders that I work with are fearless about finding and hiring the very best talent, that's where I feel like a sigh of relief. <laughs> yeah, I'm enthusiastically nodding here. Yeah, I wasn't going to talk about COVID, but uh, last year I read I read uh, the piece you wrote about the the Great Reset. Mm-hmm. Uh, forced by the pandemic, and and you talked there about the business reset that it caused, and and you wrote that, and I thought that it was relevant for 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 a lot of things unrelated to the pandemic. You said if you had a product market fit in January of 2019, you might not have had it in June, and I was wondering if that changed your state of mind at all. I mean, are you now considering things in your due diligence process, for example, that you didn't before? We always actually look at 
we always look at resilience of companies to to current market conditions. So so there is there is a question that we always ask ourselves, which is, is this company only good in an up market or is it only good in a down market? You know, so there are certain places where you know that if a customer were were really cinching their budget, this is the first thing to go. So yeah. that's that it's surprising because we've been asking that question for about three years now. Mm-hmm. And some of those areas actually that we felt were susceptible to uh, budget tightening, they've done really well because we've been in an up market cycle for a long time. But yeah, we we do think about this partially because I I think what's interesting is actually that 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 sentiment of if you had product market fit six months ago. You're not necessarily going to have it six months from now is actually still true. Yeah. Right. And so we had one company that was still pre-seed when we invested in them. The whole premise was they're going to pivot their way into something really interesting. So let's see where they go. And at first they were working and this is sort of where they landed because they were students. They were, they had a teaching platform and, you know, in January, uh, an advisor and I, we both teach at, at universities. We're very tied to universities. We both said to them, hey, you know, everything indicates that in the fall, all these universities will be back in person. And so if you think you're going to be selling to universities, you are really mistaken. We need to make a hard pivot right now. And in January, it wasn't clear because most of these these universities weren't back in person. Right. And so it's sort of that same idea of like, how will things change when you have this kind of fluctuation in reality and, and no one really knows where like the world is going. That's, it's kind of interesting because you can actually make non-consensus bets, but for the large part, you have to be aware that these things will change. Right. And maybe some of it comes back to talent, right? Because the right talent will know to adapt and will be flexible enough to to pivot when, well, maybe not necessarily when a global pandemic occurs, but uh, when shifting. I think the, the pandemic was a great example, right? Because you had some people who who, ha- who observed the pandemic and it was almost like they were observing a homework assignment. You know, they were, <laughs> they were just sort of, they were noticing the changes in the market, but they weren't yeah. fundamentally changing anything in their business. And then you had other businesses that would just do a hard reset. Yeah. They didn't they didn't pause for even a nanosecond. Yeah. And they changed literally everything about their business immediately. Mm-hmm. Even if those companies failed at the end, those are the types of founders that I would bet on again. Another thing that uh, we see now really affecting process is is the speed of of deals, right? This is this we're working now in this crazy atmosphere where attractive deals can open and close in in days and thank you tiger global for that and so the timeline for reaching conviction around a startup around the thesis and and executing the diligence has has massively changed right it's become really compressed are you have you changed anything not not really i mean i still look at companies with the same pacing i did forever right so i i have a certain cadence and if if the founders can't match that cadence, then then it's just not meant to be. And so uh, I, I've come to know that about myself. And and so if 
if the founder needs an answer today, or if they have three term sheets in hand, we were probably too late to get to the, the company anyway. And so my pleading to founders is don't wait until you already have a term sheet to come talk to us because <laughs> then we can't engage. Um, we really do like to get to know the founders and it's not just to buy ourselves time. It's important for us to do that. And so the last two investments that I made, I diligence for quite some time, like probably about a month. And so part of my problem is I have to find companies that not everyone is looking at. And that means at the end of the day, I probably have more non, non-consensus investments, but they're ones that I'm really excited by. And so uh, I don't make a lot of investments in any given year. I only make like four or five. And for a pre-seed or seed investor, that's, that's not that many. But I make high conviction investments and I partner with the founder. And, and so every single investment makes a difference in our fund. So if it's a winner, it will make, be a fund returner, a multifold. I spend time with these founders. Uh, and so, you know, part of, part of the sell is if you just want someone to write you a check and like leave you alone, we aren't your, we aren't your investor. And I, I've come to embrace that. But if you want a thought partner, if you want someone who will be honest with you and really be a champion for you, not just a cheerleader, then then we're we're the right firm for you. If you want someone to hold your feet to the fire and and make you a more intense version of yourself, then you've come to the right place. But if you just want to go about your business, Floodgate is probably not the right uh, group for you. Now, that doesn't mean that we want to get involved in ways that are not productive. I think a lot of the founders will say, we get involved when it's needed, Mm-hmm. And we know when to leave you alone. Uh, and I think that that's a really, really important and careful balance. Yeah, I, I fully agree with that. And I think, you know, that the time we talk about speed to conviction in relation to, you know, winning the deal, but there's something about the process that builds the relationship. And, you know, and that's, and that's gold. And you can't skip, uh, you can't skip phases there, right? I mean... You can't get married. I mean, some of my best investments are ones that I've actually even turned down. (laughs) You know, I turned down a couple of these investments and one, we just had an ensuing debate about why. And in that process, I, I learned that I really liked the way this founder was thinking. And we both mutually decided that because we disagreed on some fundamental pieces of the puzzle, we wouldn't go all in with a seed round. We would start off with a pre-seed round. Interesting. And so he raised a lot less capital at a lower valuation. And we spent, I think it was like a year and a half experimenting. And there's another company where I said, I was just not quite right for me but come back in six months. And like, we would just, we would touch base every few months. And that company, like the center of gravity was really about how do they execute? It wasn't a technical business. It was an Mm -hmm. operational business. And once I had the evidence of they know how to operate, then I was all in. Right. And so it's, 
it is these, it's a relationship building, but knowing like, what is it that you're looking for in a company that is so important and to be totally transparent about that with the, the founders that you're, you're trying to work with. Yeah, that's interesting because I I always feel like once we've made a decision, because there's so much gut involved, then once we've made a decision, then no one can really win you over at that point with rational agreements, right? I mean, explaining to us that why we're wrong when we already know that we're often wrong is feels like mostly a losing tactic. But but I get what you're saying. When fundamental things change, then your mindset could as well, right? Yeah, I mean, so so part of it is like with this one founder, I, I said, hey, I I really don't like this product. Right? <laughs> I don't like the product. I don't actually think that it's going to work because I don't think the consumer wallet is aligned with the way you're thinking about things. And, and so I don't want to invest in this product because I think it's going to change. You raise $2 million, you're going to be building this product you're going to be trying to get customers. You're all in on this product. And that's not, that's not the journey I'm on. But given what we've talked about, and you agree that these are assumptions that we both agree about, but these are the assumptions we don't agree on, then the probability that you throw away this product concept in the next six months is pretty high. <laughs> So why are we raising $2 million, right? And so the, the financing product has to match the intention of that moment. And so I think mo a lot of founders are stuck on, I have to raise $2 million. I have to raise $3 million because my friend just raised $3 million. And if I yeah. come back and say I raised $750,000, I'm going to look like a wimp, right? <laughs> and so the founder who listens to that and decides to raise $3 million anyway we weren't on the same journey anyway, because they're, they care more about what they're going to tell their friends, what's going to be in the headline for TechCrunch. Then they care about what's, what is it that I want to do in this round and what is the right financing product for that round. And, and that I will yeah. invest in the person who cares more about doing the right thing than doing the showy thing over and over again. 100% agree. There are three questions that all episodes end with, and I want your unfiltered thoughts. Shoot. Okay. What makes a great VC investor? Someone who cares deeply about the company that they're partnering with. Someone who is a co-conspirator and hmm. not just an investor. Love that. What advice do you have for our audience? And keep in mind, we have both VC investors and entrepreneurs listening to us. What your, what's your best advice? Treasure your learning self. I think this is true for, for anyone, actually. Uh, and, and I think most people get caught up in learning business and learning technology. And I think your learning self is actually curious about a lot of things. And you'll be surprised what you become inspired by. I, at the beginning of this year, I read this uh, pretty large biography. It was almost like a thousand pages on Beethoven. Mm -hmm. And I was so inspired by that journey. And it's come back to me many, many times, like the, the quotes from that, that book and the things that I learned about what it is to think outside the box. Um, and so I think it's that just really treasure your learning self. 
I also find myself learning sometimes the most from things that are completely unrelated to, you know, to our day to day. And that's, uh, those are often the most fascinating uh, uh, learnings. But that brings me to the last question, which is what inspires you? What books or blogs or podcasts inspire you? How do you, how do you stay sharp? Um, so it's not so much like the actual content that I'm reading at any point in time. I read a lot of books. I read a lot of fiction right now. I'm, I'm reading actually a book that my kids have read. It's the hate you give, uh, which was also turned into a movie. I read about 50 books a year. And so it definitely comes from that. But I think my inspiration then comes from how do I translate what I'm reading or what I'm seeing into real knowledge and I'm pretty diligent about how do I take notes? How do those notes then turn into knowledge that I can reference? Um, and how do I reflect? And so that's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about and practicing over time. Thank you so much. I hope your day continues as uh, calmly as uh, our last. Has <laughs> it started? <laughs> it is, uh, yeah, it started a frenzy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sure. Have a wonderful day. That's a wrap. Tune in next week for another candid conversation on what makes a great VC investor with your host, the Kaufman Fellows. 